Now this is um, week three of this series, Coming to Know Your Father. And uh, what I want to do for the first few minutes tonight is to review what we said last week because uh, not all of that was recorded. And for the folk who uh, might want to catch up on this, I do want to at least have some bit of content uh, from last week before we launch into what we're saying this week. Uh, As a bit of heads up, we will be looking uh, extensively tonight at Romans chapter 8. So while you're listening to the review, you might like to try and find a Bible and open up to Romans chapter 8. We will be spending quite a lot of time in that this evening. But last week we were saying that God the Father is always the Father in relationship. Uh, He is the Father eternally of the eternal Son and God the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father who is poured out through the Son. So two of the things that the Holy Spirit teaches us to cry out in our hearts are Abba Father because he's the Spirit of the Father And Jesus is Lord because he's um, uh, the Spirit of the Father poured out through the Son on the day of his ascension. So we always know the Father in relationship. None acts independently of the other, even though we can say that the Father properly is the first person of the Trinity. Uh, That's why the creed is structured in the way it is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the next part of the creed, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Then the last part of the creed is about the Holy Spirit and the Church. So, God the Father is the initiator of things, if I could put it that way, within that divine family. And you see that very clearly, for example, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, God the Father sends the eternal Son into the world. And the eternal Son comes in joyful obedience to the Father and the angels gather around and the shepherds are overawed when they see the angelic host rejoicing that the Son has come into the world. And you could imagine the sort of gossip that went along the halls of heaven as one told another and another and they said things like, do you know what they're planning? Do you know what the Lord is doing? do you know where he's going? And they would have been astounded to see the condescension of God as he, through the eternal word, came to earth and dwelt among us. But that incarnation over which the angels rejoiced was the work of the Spirit bringing uh, the conception of Jesus through the womb of the Virgin Mary from whom he took his human nature. So that's just an example of how the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are always in operation together but the Father is the first person of the Trinity in that and as we'll come to see before the end of the series he is, going, he is the one to whom all praise will be given in the end. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The initiator of all things is also the summation and consummation of all things. But we saw that that revelation of God's fatherhood was not a spectator sport. Uh, God didn't come 
through Jesus Christ to do what he did in order for us to just stand back at a distance and watch. He actually came that we would be included and that act of incarnation and the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ means that the Son has not gone back empty-handed. He stands in the presence of the Father with a great multitude now that no person can number from all tribe and tongue and people and nation to quote the book of the Revelation, all with the same spirit of the Father in their hearts, all who cry out in their own hearts, Abba, Father, all who are united with the Son so that this action of God the Father through the Son by the Spirit is to bring us in. It's it's not to exclude but to include. We're not spectators of what God has done. He's drawn us in to his own self. He's brought us right into the centre of his divine family so that where Jesus is, so we will be also. That's the prayer that he prayed, that where I am, they may be also. And that prayer has been answered. We are where he is in the heart of the Father, embraced in the fullness of the Father's love. But we also saw last week that that beautiful picture of fatherhood is contested, that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the the enemy of God and the people of God, uh, presents himself as a false father and he stamps his image on his children. So that Jesus says to those in John chapter 8 in the passage we looked at last week, you are of your father the devil and you do your deeds, you do the deeds of your father. They said, no, 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 no. We've always been the children of God. We've always been children of Abraham. Jesus said, if you were children of of my father, you would do the deeds that Abraham did, you would believe in me. And at that point they took up stones to stone him which showed where they really belonged. But we saw how wicked and dysfunctional that fatherhood can be and we focused uh, on the events of uh, the rise of Hitler in World War II. We saw those magnificent cathedrals of light and other things which uh, massed hundreds of thousands entered and how that perverted fatherhood drew multitudes to worship the father and drew multitudes to love the father figure but in such a way that consciences were shaped and culture was changed and the whole system organised so that the love for the father, in inverted commas, would be turned outward with equal vehemence as hatred for those who are not on the inside. So the destructive power of the Panzer divisions uh, got its power from that dysfunctional fatherhood. And we talked about that because it's a very clear example and we're far enough removed from it. But the point I made simply was it's for no reason then that Jesus says, call no man father. Yes, you can have a vicar father. Yes, you can have a confessor father. 
But the moment you start relating to another person, male or female, in that way that you expect from them what only the Heavenly Father can give you, at that point you're in grave danger because all of the dynamics that should attach to true fatherhood are then twisted and perverted with equal power in the anti-fatherhood movement. Now, that happens throughout history and across the church and across the nations today. Uh, Every cult, every sect, every movement, we mention things like Jonestown, but even down to what happens within local churches sometimes, all of those dynamics will be present. And the only thing that stops it being that way all the time everywhere is the constant revelation of the true fatherhood from heaven. That's why hearing the gospel and hearing the word of the Father is just so important to us all the time. But we ended up last week saying, well, even if evil fathers know how to give us good gifts, because even the most ratbag, alcoholic, drunken father still gives a cricket ball to his son at Christmas time. And it's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? That if you've had such a father and you let someone in the schoolyard say something to you about your dad, you'll stand up and say, he's my dad, you just leave him alone. There's something so deep and so powerful in that relationship, even when it's twisted. And here Jesus says, well, if your fatherhood, being twisted and evil as it is, knows how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give you good things? But in Luke's Gospel, interestingly enough, it says, how much more will he not give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so we left last week saying how important it is to not just understand but to actually participate in the ministry of the Spirit because it's through the Spirit we come to know the Father and the Son. And we're going to spend a lot of time tonight talking about the ministry of the Spirit in relationship to us as he adopts us into the Father's family. So that covers where we were last week. I hope all that rings bells with you. And uh, now we're just going to move on to new material, if that's okay. We've had some time for questions earlier. Now, adoption, the biblical concept of adoption is at the centre of a number of terms. It overlaps with a number of really significant concepts. We're not going through these in detail tonight but I just want to show you how they interrelate because a little later we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 8 and every part of these overlapping overlapping concepts emerges strongly in Romans chapter 8. If you start in the bottom left hand corner, adoption relates to the idea of election. Uh, Not us voting for God but him choosing us. We're used to elections where we vote for God, uh, where we vote for politicians. (laughs) You think they're God. But many, many years ago a friend wrote a book which the title of which was God's Not Up for Re-Election. God's Not Up for Re-Election. 
But God is in the business of having a constituency, a group of people who will know him as father, a group of sons and daughters who will love him. And so out of the nations of the earth he chooses, for example, Abraham who will be the father of a multitude and then through Abraham, Isaac and through Isaac's line, Jacob and through all of those lines down to you and to me. So that God the Father doesn't let the concept or the reality of his fatherhood disappear out into nothing. Even in the midst of this sinful, hostile, rebellious world which hates him, he is determined that he will have a family. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 for example it just says that we were predestined to adoption as sons. Now that's a very beautiful statement because it means it's not up to you because if it was up to you you'd stuff it up. But if God is the one who graciously works and acts then your security is not yourself. It's him. So we are predestined to adoption as sons by the kind intention of his will, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. But Ephesians then immediately goes on to talk about redemption, the redemption which is in Christ's blood. Because in biblical language you can't be adopted by God without at the same time being redeemed from all of that dysfunctional, false, satanic, wicked, twisted, destructive fatherhood which has dominated the world since the fall. So as an example of that, you see in Exodus where Israel is languishing in captivity in Egypt and uh, Moses tries to deliver them at one point when he's a youngster of 40 years old and he ends up just killing one Egyptian, burying him in the sand and running away for 40 years until when he's 80 and he's learned one or two things, the Lord's ready to bring him back to be a true deliverer. And when that happens, God says to him, you go in and say to Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 4, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let Israel go that he may worship me. And Pharaoh's response was, of course Moses, whatever you ask. (laughs) Pharaoh's response was, it'll be a very cold place and a very hot place before I let any of your people go. And Moses, of course, says, to God, well, how can I do it? And God says, that's the point, Moses, you can't. That's why I had to wait till you were 80. Because you can't deliver yourself. Israel's never been in a position where it could deliver itself, not while it was in slavery in Egypt or from any of its other enemies in the Old Testament narrative. It was always a redemption which God brought. So this idea of God's adoption is closely linked to his rescuing us. To be adopted into God's family is to be rescued from all of the filth and 
wrongness and dysfunctional hatred of satanic fatherhood. But then if you go across the top right corner, you can't actually have that redemption without forgiveness. Uh, There had to be a Passover lamb sacrificed for that Egyptian exodus, didn't there? And throughout the Old Testament you have the lamb all the way through being sacrificed for the sins of the nation. And the promise in Jeremiah 31 verse 34 is they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them because I will forgive their sins. Now, here's something very, 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 very important. You only come to know God as your Father through forgiveness. You can't know God as your Father by an intellectual, theological, rational exercise. Forgiveness is the key that opens up who the Father is to you because you only see the Father as he really is in the face of Jesus Christ. And the place where you see him most fully revealed as he really is (laughs) is as the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. And when you see that that's your sins he's taken away, then suddenly the whole reality of fatherhood starts to break open to you because it's no longer a theological construct, it's actually a dynamic relationship with someone who's loved you and forgiven you. And if you've never experienced that forgiveness, no matter what I say to you about fatherhood over these lectures, it'll just be like water off a duck's back. But if you know that forgiveness then everything's open to you. So the the forgiveness that the Father brings to us in the Son is the key to us understanding who we are and who he is. But that forgiveness, as well as the redemption, as well as the the election, as well as the adoption, all happens through union with Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us We were dead in our transgressions, the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were walked according to the prince of the power of this world. We too were children of disobedience. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. How? Together with Christ. There is no Christian life apart from Jesus. You don't have a Christian life. You only have Christ. You don't have Christian ethics. You only have Christ. From one point of view, you don't live a Christian life. You have the life of Jesus in you. It's him living his life in you. It's not you living the best for him. Everything that you know as a Christian And everything you'll ever experience of the fatherhood of God you'll only know by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. You're adopted in Jesus Christ. You're forgiven through Jesus Christ. You're elect in Jesus Christ. You're redeemed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in, with, through, by 
Martin Luther said, all the good theology lies in the prepositions. You know those little words, in, with, through, by, for? That's where all the good theology is. So this concept of adoption that we're looking at in passing tonight is uh, of significance not just for a concept in itself but for the way in which it relates to all these other things. And as we said, it's particularly a work of the Spirit. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Now, you meet them, well, we don't meet them too often here, but some of the big cities in some of the places on the Indian subcontinent where some of us go sometimes. I mean, an orphan in that situation, it's just a horrible place. It's hand-to-mouth existence. It's scratching as best you can to get by. It's dog-eat-dog. It's competition. It's staking out your territory. It's not being preyed upon. It's somehow or other collecting a gang together so that you can defend off the bad guys. It's thieving. It's robbing. To survive. Jesus said, I haven't left you as orphans. I just wonder tonight, without trying to press anything wrongly into your conscience or heart, how much of your life do you live as though you are an orphan? Like, you have to do it yourself because no one else is going to do it. You've got to look after number one because God's not. No one else will. And you're fairly distrustful of everyone and everything and fear is the thing that governs your every move. You're not orphans, beloved. Jesus said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. And what he was speaking about in John chapter 14 was the giving of the gift of the Spirit when he would come to us in the Spirit. And then in Romans chapter 8, after that day of Pentecost, after the gift of the Spirit had been poured out, Paul says, we've not received a spirit of slavery to return to fear again, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Now what does the word Abba mean? It's baby talk. In terms of the genesis of the word, it's got that sort of feel about it. Abba, da, ba, ba, da, ba, ba, da, ba, ba, ba. And out of that comes the first utterances. Daddy, Mummy, Abba, Abba Father. And significantly enough, in Judaism, that word was used as a title of profound affection and respect. Sometimes for an esteemed teacher or a rabbi might be your Abba. But it was never 
ever under any circumstances used of God. Because God is too big and too holy and too transcendent and basically too scary. And the height of impudence to think that you could call him Abba, which is a word that you will still hear on the lips of children as they run through the streets. A three-year-old looking for his father will run through saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. Jesus says that's the relationship you're being brought into. And it's not a relationship where that child running to Abba then finds Abba's back turned, as so often happens in our Australian family. Nick off, kid. I'm watching the cricket. Abba, Abba, Abba. Get lost. Get me another beer. Australian fatherhood's shocking, most of it. But when that child runs to Abba, he runs to Abba because all of the fullness of Abba's love is drawn. And that child's face is the only thing that Abba's face seeks. I'll interrupt myself a bit. Uh, We've got a group of about, I don't know, 50, 60 people here tonight. God doesn't love each of you equally. There's not a certain amount of love in God's heart for him to divide up between the group of us here. Abba loves every one of you totally. The fullness, the completeness, the utter abandonment of God's love is focused on every one of his children. So when the child runs crying, Abba, Father, It's not going to meet a response where Abba turns his back or folds his arms or turns the son away. So all of these things about which we're speaking are now crystallising for us in Romans chapter 8 and as we said earlier, if you have your Bibles there, open up because we're going to spend a bit of time reading through Romans chapter 8 and uh, make a sort of running commentary as we go. Romans chapter 8, if you need a Bible, put your hand up and someone will bring you one. Do you need one? Does anyone need one? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you see that? Union. In Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I've just realised I'm probably reading from a different translation to the Pew Bibles but I think you'll be able to pick it up. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Now there's Forgiveness, redemption, all 
tied up with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Basically what Paul's saying in those verses is that you can't be in a right relationship with God by trying harder. You can't be in a right relationship with him by becoming more spiritual, more Christian, more devoted, more pious or more Lutheran. You only become righteous with God in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God has done something that you can't do. All of our law keeping is never able to move us one iota closer to God because the very little bit of law we keep today we break tomorrow. And the very little bit that we do keep we then strut around like peacocks saying, look at me, I've kept a commandment. (laughs) And then we're sunk by the tenth, the ninth and tenth ones, aren't we? So, what the law could not do, God has done. He condemns sin where? in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how this has happened and you don't know how it's happened and you'll be the proudest jackass under heaven if you think you could explain it. But somehow in that one small point of matter which was Jesus' body, in that one small time frame between the hour of his crucifixion and the hour of his death, somewhere, somehow in that, God condemned the sin of the whole world in Jesus' flesh. Which, by the way, includes yours. And might lance the boil. It includes your dad's. All condemned in the sin or in the flesh of Jesus as he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. That we might be the righteousness of God in him. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus because the condemnation is what Jesus has already come through. But then he speaks in these ways. Verse 4. That the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now let me just stop there. Does your translation have that word flesh or does it have something else? Does it have sinful nature or something else? Your old self or... Yeah? Those who have the word flesh, hands up. Ah, good translations. Well done. Because what this first part of Romans is telling us is that there are two places Those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things according to the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh, get this, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
but you are not in the flesh, verse 9. Now, what does this mean? If you hear the word flesh, I mean, let's be honest, you probably think sex. Most people who hear the word flesh think sex. Or they might think body. So what does Paul mean then when he says you who are in Christ are not in the flesh? Well, I know Christian men and women who have a good sex life. And every Christian man and woman I'm looking at here tonight has got a body. Aren't you a body? Are you a body? Or am I just looking at a lot of ghosts? Some of us are fairly corpulent bodies, aren't we? So, what is the flesh then of which Paul speaks? Throughout Paul, you need to bear this in mind, the word flesh is a realm of existence, a mode of being, a way of relating. Put the thing another way. Did Jesus have an earthly flesh and bones body when he rose from the dead? Yes? Come on, don't be frightened. Yes. He says, look, touch my hands, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. Does Jesus have an earthly flesh and bones body now? Oh, you better say yes or you're not going to be sitting in a Lutheran church for very long. Otherwise, what are you doing coming to the communion? Of course he does. You don't leave your flesh behind your body. Jesus came in a body to redeem us bodily, to raise our bodies to glory so that in our bodies we will praise God and with our bodies we will transform the universe. So get out of your head this rotten, stinking Greek idea that when you die you're going to float around in the cosmos like some disembodied spirit and you're going to just be What are you going to be? You're going to be nothing. Your flesh, body is not the problem. (laughs) The flesh with a capital F is the problem. That realm in which your body lives. So these words all apply to this realm of the flesh from other parts in the Bible. It's natural. It belongs to Adam. It's come from Adam. It's affected with Adam's sin. It's Adamic humanity. It belongs to the first Adam. It's marked by guilt. Those in the spirit who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. For those who are in the flesh, there is guilt because you are a transgressor of the law in the flesh. So you're under the condemnation of the broken law And the antidote for condemnation and guilt is religion. 
The flesh loves religion. It loves dress-ups. It loves ascetic treatment of the body. It loves harsh disciplines, fasting, whipping yourself. It loves putting on a show. It loves being seen to pray. It loves to think that it's more righteous than other people. The flesh just loves religion. Religion is where the flesh dresses itself up like a peacock. And as Luther said, there's nothing so ugly as the flesh when it's trying to be spiritual. All human religion comes out of the flesh. But the end thereof is the way of death because there's no redemption there, there's no forgiveness, there's no adoption, there's no mercy, there's no grace. It's darkness. And the one who dominates the flesh is Satan. You are of your father, the devil. It's a whole realm of existence. And you're in it, body, soul and spirit. Your conscience is in it. Your mind is in it. Your body is affected by it. But the spirit is from above. Remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus? You must be born from above. That which is of the earth is earthly. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And instead of being the inheritance of Adam, the realm of the spirit is the inheritance of Christ. He's the head of this new humanity in the spirit. And where guilt marked what it was to be in the flesh, righteousness marks what it is to be in the spirit. Uh, Spirit is not eating and drinking but uh, love, uh, righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Righteousness not because we've earned it but because Christ's given it to us. Righteousness because the Father's made us righteous through what he's done. And therefore, instead of being the realm of condemnation, it's the realm of freedom. He has set you free from the law of sin and death. You no longer have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Uh, Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And instead of religion, oh God save us from religion, instead of religion it's worship where your heart just sings with thankfulness to God, where in your need you cry out a psalm of lament in your heart and everything is just directed to Abba because Abba knows and Abba understands and Abba hears and Abba is with you and Abba brings you joy and Abba carries you through the night. And where there was death, there's life and where there's darkness, there's light. And instead of Satan ruling over the flesh, in the spirit, God is your father. And here you are, I'm assuming we're all Christian people here tonight, with your body and your physical mind, you are hearing words in the spirit. 
and you are participating in worship in the Spirit. And God will raise up these earthly bodies and transform them and make them like Christ's heavenly body but it will be a body for eternity that is filled with the Spirit. You won't be floating around some disembodied little cloud. Be a real, substantial, true human being. Wonderful. So in Romans chapter 8, first part Paul says, well you were in the flesh, guess what? You're not there anymore. Now one of Satan's chief tricks is to tell you that you are. Every day he will tell you that you are still a guilty, condemned, darkened, satanic, oppressed sinner. You are engaged in a battle, there's no doubt about it. But every day he's trying to tell you not where you are in Christ but where he can convince you that you are and he's got evidence. He can say, oh, if you were really in the spirit you wouldn't have had that crappy thought about Mrs. So-and-so. <laughs> if you were really in the spirit you'd be able to pray more. If you were really in the spirit you wouldn't have any trouble listening to these lectures. If you really were in the spirit you'd love coming to church. He works always as the accuser of the brethren but he always comes to do the same thing, to steal and to kill and destroy. But then Romans goes on to tell us these other things. He goes on to tell us, verse 12, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for those who live according to the flesh die. But by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So that's what you are. It's a child of God. You're led by the Spirit of God. You probably wouldn't be here tonight if you weren't led by the Spirit of God probably wouldn't have any hunger to read the Bible if you weren't led by the Spirit of God. You wouldn't have any love in your heart for God as your Father if you weren't led by the Spirit of God and you'd have no love in your heart for one another if you weren't led by the Spirit of God but the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. For you did not receive a gift of slavery or spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you've received a spirit of adoption When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we are co-heirs with Christ. Shorthand way of saying, everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has is yours. To be a co-heir with someone is to share in their inheritance. I think we live with a very diminished view of who we are and what God's made us to be. You're going to rule heaven and earth with Jesus. So, that leaves us with a problem. 
Well, if all of that's true, why does my big toe hurt so much when I hit it? Well, this world is not yet heaven. We're waiting. So here we are, fellow heirs with Christ. We have the Spirit. We're in the Spirit. We're no longer in the flesh. Children, no longer subject to a spirit of fear. But we suffer. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Creation waits with eager longing. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we await for adoption, the redemption of our Won't it be great to have a body which doesn't get old and doesn't get tired? Won't it be great to have a body which is filled with glory? Have you ever been into a labour suite, into a birthing room? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Hands up if you think it would be very nice and clean and clinical and quiet and restrained and ordered and aromatic. Or hands up if you think a birthing room is going to be full of mess and smell and crying and screaming and panic and joy and sloppiness. Yes? Well, that's what you're in. We're in God's birthing room. This world is not yet heaven. And the creation groans because it can't be what it's destined to be yet. And we groan because we can't be what we're destined to be yet. And the whole lot is like the spirit groaning with the pains of childbirth until now and as the date for that delivery and as the moment of that delivery and as the separation of the umbilical cord comes, those contraction and labour pains get stronger and stronger and the mess gets deeper and the screaming gets louder and then suddenly there's a new creation. Well, that's what you're in now. As a child of God, that's where you are. That creation can't come to its fullness until you've been brought to your fullness. You're not a worm burrowing your way through the mud 
with God looking at you from a big distance away in heaven and you covering your head if worms have one to say, don't look at me, don't look at me. You're a son of God. One in whom he takes eternal and wonderful delight, the one on whom he set his affection before the foundation of the world and he has destined for you to stand in Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to reign with Jesus Christ for all eternity, to be a royal priesthood and to rule as kings on the earth. That is your inheritance and your destiny. And that's why the creation can't come to fullness just now. Because we're not quite there yet. Jesus Christ is the only man who's fully there. And he's taking us with him, but we're not quite there yet. So it can't be fulfilled just now, but we groan along with the Spirit and the creation. And as we do, Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought. It's just a statement, isn't it? How many times have you hadn't had a clue to know what to pray for today? Haven't had a clue what to pray. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words And God who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now that's a fantastic picture. Remember what we said about being embraced in the arms of the triune Godhead, about being in the centre of the triangle, so to speak. Well, here the picture's a little bit inverted and that whole power of the, the, the Spirit of God with the Father and the Son is actually in you because you are in him but he is in you and you're in the birthing suite and you're starting to get overpowered by the smell and you think you're going to faint and you don't know what to cry out anymore and you're sort of barely coherent because of it all And inside you, the Spirit is praying. And you don't know what to ask for, but the Spirit knows what to ask for. And God, so to speak, searches (laughs) and he looks and he hears. And what does he hear? He doesn't hear all of the confusion and the perplexity and the accusation and the condemnation and the fear and the shame. He hears the voice of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God and so as he hears your heart crying out with sighs which you can barely put into words, that, says Luther, ascends to heaven and penetrates the very ears of God 
So that all God hears is that prayer from within saying, Abba, 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 help. Abba, bless. Abba, fill. Abba, come. You're not conscious of it. Because it's the work of the Spirit too deep to utter. Now, I hope that gives you some encouragement because you're going to meet a thousand things a day which leave you completely flummoxed and you don't know what to do or what to say and you come away from some of those things thinking, oh God, I've completely stuffed it up. I've done the wrong thing. I've said the wrong Truth? Or just as well the Holy Spirit's praying and just as well what God hears is the prayer of the Spirit. And he hears that prayer and he says, gee, this spirit bears testimony with their spirit that they are my children and that's what I hear coming from their hearts. And so then Paul says, well, what's the result of all of this? Well, no matter what's happening, how confused we get, the Father's purpose is sure. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, election. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be honest, God's not interested on how your retirement balance is going too much, nor is he interested very much whether you've got a stubbed toe or not. What he is interested in is what's all of that doing for how you're conformed to the image of his son. He'll use everything. He'll use the evil plans of men and women. He'll use the wickedness of Satan himself. He'll use the accusations of the devil. He'll use illness, perplexity, pain, death, grief, bereavement. He'll use the lot and he'll work it all together for good so that you might be conformed to the image of his Son. And those who predestined he called and those whom he called he's justified, no condemnation. And those whom he justified he's glorified. So what are, they, what are we to say about these things? Well, says Paul, if God is for us, who's against us? Simple answer is the world, the flesh and the devil, they're all against you. God's for you, they're against you. But he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It's Christ Jesus who's died, yes, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And Paul's saying there, if there's one man in the world who would be justified in condemning you, it would be Jesus. Because when he came to earth from heaven, we crucified him. If there was one man in the world who should stand up and condemn us, it would be him. But he's not. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. So, says Paul, 
what's going to separate us? Is there anything in heaven or on earth that's going to separate us from the love of God? No, he says, verse 37, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So where does that leave you all tonight? Well, it actually leaves you just where you began. Embraced by the Father in the Son, filled with his Spirit. All Paul's done is just tell you who you are. All that day's passage has done is unpack the Father's plan and purpose and he's told you tonight clearly, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit and you're in the Spirit by adoption. That great, wonderful, sovereign grace gift by which God has taken the rebellious humanity that we've been and adopted us as his sons. And I hope also tonight that's just helped lift the lid on the vision that we should have as God's people. We are destined in Christ for things which eye has not seen nor has ear heard, beloved. So don't be too concerned about the sufferings of this present world which Paul says aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to follow. But we'll leave it there for now. We've had a long, long night. You've been very, very patient tonight. Uh, We'll pray and then as we did last week, we'll just sit quietly and as you feel uh, free to move off, um, you can move off and uh, we'll assemble, God willing, next week at the same time. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, uh, we have been concerned by so many things and we have often lived as though we are orphans And we've often listened to the voice of the accuser of the brethren who's told us that we still really are in that realm of condemnation and fear, that we really still are somehow under your eternal judgment. And yet, Father, your Son has come And he's lifted us up and your gift to us is that his prayer would be answered. That where he is we may be also. Father, just break down in us all of those resistances just to your tender affection 
where we might have a catalogue of wrongs against someone, even our own earthly father. Break them all down by your love. Let us see that Christ took his sin into his body on the tree as much as he took ours. And Father, let us just walk as your children free, co-heirs with Christ. And Father, in our perplexity and in our problem sometimes with the birthing suite being as messy as it is, just let us know that your spirit is interceding for us. And that he groans within with labour pains far greater than we could ever imagine. So, Father, settle us in these things. Secure us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.